Cassandra was initially released in 2008 as a project out of Facebook. Cassandra offered an open-source solution to database scalability issues that were being tackled internally by large companies such as Amazon, Google, and Facebook. 2008 was a golden age of new infrastructure, with systems such as Hadoop and Kafka gaining traction around the same time. Jonathan Ellis started working with Cassandra and became intrigued by the system. With the help of investors, Jonathan began working on a company based around Cassandra called Datastax. Today, Datastax is a company with more than 450 employees and a large valuation. Jonathan joins the show to discuss his experience working with Cassandra and his reflections on the becoming of an entrepreneurial founder of a highly successful database company. There's a wealth of useful knowledge for both software engineers and entrepreneurs in this episode, and it was a real pleasure talking to Jonathan. He's a true engineer's engineer as well as entrepreneur's entrepreneur, so quite an awesome episode. As a company grows, the software infrastructure becomes a large, complex distributed system. Without standardized applications or security policies, it can become difficult to oversee all the vulnerabilities that might exist across all of your physical machines, virtual machines, containers, and cloud services. ExtraHop is a cloud-native security company that detects threats across your hybrid infrastructure. ExtraHop has vulnerability detection running up and down your networking stack, from L2 to L7, and it helps you spot, investigate, and respond to anomalous behavior using more than 100 machine learning models. At extrahop.com slash cloud, you can learn about how ExtraHop delivers cloud-native network detection and response. ExtraHop will help you find misconfigurations and blind spots in your infrastructure and stay in compliance. Understand your identity and access management payloads to look for credential harvesting and brute force attacks and automate the security settings of your cloud provider integrations. Visit extrahop.com slash cloud to find out how ExtraHop can help you secure your enterprise. Thank you to ExtraHop for being a sponsor of Software Engineering Daily. And if you want to check out ExtraHop and support the show, go to extrahop.com slash cloud. Jonathan Ellis, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thanks, Jeff. It's great to be here. Cassandra was initially released in 2008. What were the challenges at the database layer that large internet companies were dealing with back then? Going to get into my Wayback Machine here for a second. So I started working on Cassandra as kind of a, the second generation of developers because the first generation was, was created at Facebook and I wasn't part of that. So I came on board when it was open sourced in the summer of 2008, like you said. And the way I got to that was I had been working at a backup provider called Mosey for you know three or so years before that. And this was kind of early days of Web 2.0 is, is I think what they were calling it at the time. And you know, kind of the realization happening in the industry that you know, we were going to be building these connected applications that were 
web first. And later on, you know, you had kind of a corollary of mobile first. But the the common thing they had had was that instead of you know, deploying your software to an organization in the classic, you know, I'm going to have my exchange server running on site, or I'm going to have my Oracle, you know, ERP software running on site. I'm going to have this, you know, cloud application that, you know, the entire country is going to be my user base. And so we encountered that at Mozi that we actually built a custom storage system for the backup data itself, for the pictures and videos and so on. But then we had a need for a database to keep track of which files belonged to which users. And that was actually a big problem at the time. Like the state of the art was a sharded Oracle or sharded MySQL, which comes with a lot of problems in terms of both reliability and availability, but also performance and the ability to scale. So I, I recognized from personal experience that you know, we were entering this new era of application development and the database was a bottleneck that and kind of an unsolved problem where you know, the state of the art was not a good place. The, the sharded relational was not a good place and we needed something better. So I actually talked to the Rackspace Labs team at PyCon. I gave a talk on the work that I'd done for Mozi building their storage engine, which I'd actually done in Python. And we can talk about that. Actually, it's a fascinating topic of why I did that and why I wouldn't do it again that way. But you know, we talked a little bit and I said, hey, you know, I, I think that the next really interesting problem to solve is scalable databases. And, and they said, well, actually, we need that as well. We're starting to run into that problem at Rackspace. We'd love to hire you and have you help us solve that problem. So I got to Rackspace just a couple months after Facebook released Cassandra's open source. And I got to evaluate at the time, uh, there was MongoDB, there was HBase, there were some systems that, that kind of faded away, like Voldemort and Dynamite was another one. And so I got to evaluate kind of these nascent scalable database projects. And I really thought that Cassandra had the best combination of, you know, it, it has a robust data model as opposed to some of the others that were, that were only key value. But Cassandra also had a fully distributed model that made it much easier to build in the kind of availability characteristics that you need when you're building cloud applications. So that's the really long answer of, of how I got started. But yeah, so I think it was clear to to engineers at the time that this was a problem that needed solving. But coming back to, to your original question, I don't think it was nearly as clear to non-technical people. So actually, when we were fundraising for, for data stacks, the most common response we got was, yeah, this is interesting technology, but you know, there's five companies in the world who actually need a scalable database. And of course, today there's thousands of companies running Cassandra. And, you know, I, I think it's clear that it's a, it's a ubiquitous problem. Well, that is what happens. You start out with the five companies that need it. And then over time, you just have the growth. And if we talk about the literature at the time, Google had published the Big Table paper. Amazon had published the Dynamo paper. These things contributed to the architecture of the Cassandra 
model, although Cassandra, I believe, also had some some novel implementation details. Give me your recollection of the state of the art of distributed data systems back then. Yeah, so that that's right. That's a good summary that Bigtable and Dynamo were definitely the most well-known. If I remember correctly, Bigtable, the paper was published uh, in 2006 and Dynamo in 2007. And I, I think in a lot of ways, it's not wrong to think of Cassandra as Dynamo 2.0. So at least one of the engineers who invented Cassandra and possibly both of them, I don't remember for sure, uh, was one of the authors of the, the Dynamo paper from Amazon. And so Dynamo, well, okay, I'll back up and I'll do it in chronological order. Bigtable says, okay, we, we have at Google a distributed file system called uh, GFS, and it's the, the spiritual fa- father of HDFS in the, in the Hadoop world. So Google said, given that we have a distributed file system, you know, how can we build a database on top of this? And so that's where Bigtable came from is it's designed to run on top of a distributed file system. And that kind of takes care of the storage aspect of it. So the file system is in charge of the replication. And then the database is just, you know, just, I put just in quotes, it's, it's still a, a hard problem. But the database is just in charge of, you know, mapping, you know, chunks of storage to tables of data that the the users have. And so it's actually a a fairly complicated system where you have a master of the big table system, and then you have tablet servers that are each responsible for ranges of data in the tables that you're serving. And both of those are single points of failure, and they need to have failover. And to handle that failover, you have another service that was uh, chubby in the big table paper. That's their locks, lock manager. And then you have the, the surface area of GFS itself. It's, it's very impressive. I'm, I'm definitely not trying to take that away from it, but it's also, there's a lot of moving pieces. So the Hadoop ecosystem or the Hadoop community said, hey, you know, we're, we've got HDFS that's you know, very similar to GFS. We can build HBase that's very similar to Bigtable. And so, you know, as I said, that was one of the options that I looked at when I was evaluating the landscape. But you know, I, at the time, HBase was about 250,000 lines of code if you, you know, included some of those dependencies. And Cassandra was about 35,000 lines of code. And so part of my thinking was, you know, as a fairly small team at Rackspace, you know, how comfortable am I going to be, you know, fixing a problem that's an interaction between HDFS and one of the tablet servers and possibly Zookeeper? Like that's that's a lot <laughs> of surface area. You're afraid to HBase. Yes, yes. So the complexity was one of the things that that scared me away from that. But then in, in 2007, Amazon published their Dynamo paper, which is a, a very different take on the same problem space. And they said, as opposed to Bigtable, Bigtable gives you keys and it's almost like a map of maps where you have you know kind of partition keys, but for each partition, you can have a key value map associated with that. And they call those columns, which is confusing because in the relational world, a column means like a very different thing. So there's definitely some terminology confusion that we did at Cassandra. We followed the HBase. Yeah, you, you, you got it right. You got it right eventually. 
yeah, we got it right eventually. But Dynamo says, hey, we're not going to do maps of maps. We're just going to do key value. And what we're going to do is to allow you to mitigate between competing updates to the same value, we're going to use this tool called Vector Clocks, which basically gives each update to a value a unique identifier that's associated with the client that made that update. And they are ordered logically, not chronologically. So even if the uh, clients doing the updates are, you know, their, their clocks are completely out of sync on the physical machine, since it's a logical clock and not a chronological clock, we can still detect what order those changes were made. And then the, the problem with that system is that it then kicks out to the application developer, hey, there was this conflict, these two concurrent updates. Now it's up to you to figure out what to do with that and to decide what, to, what the combined value should be. So when those engineers went to Facebook and, and started building a next generation system, one of the lessons they took away from Dynamo was, you know, vector clocks are too hard for you know, application developers to use. So we're going to do something simpler. We're going to split those key values apart. We're going to use the big table-like data model of a map of maps. And that, that reduces your conflict surface area significantly because now each client can use a different sub-key within that partition that you're distributing. And so you can avoid conflicts by using unique subkeys like UUIDs as your subkeys across those clients. And then if you do have conflicts even within that split out partition, then we're just going to use simple timestamp-based reconciliation, which is you know technically less elegant, but also much easier for average developers to reason about. So if I understand correctly, those selections that the Cassandra engineers made, that led to the tunable consistency model, right? Because you kind of have these options, mm-hmm. these fallback options, right? Like was that novel in the in the Cassandra world? I don't know if I don't know to what degree the the consistency model of Dynamo was was also tunable. Yeah, Dynamo was also tunable. So that was the other big difference from uh, Bigtable was you know Bigtable says I have leaders for these ranges of data and you know each leader is the you know the master of that range and if i lose that leader then i need to do a failover and elect a new one and and the data is unavailable until that new one is elected whereas dynamo is saying we're not going to have any leaders it's going to be completely distributed any replica can update its own data without having to consult anyone which makes it much more robust to failure, but now it also introduces the possibility of inconsistency where different replicas have different answers. And so that's where the tunability comes from is when as a client, when I'm making an update, you know, how synchronous do I want to require that to be across the different replicas? And that was, that was kind of where it started was as you can choose you know, a quorum of replicas, or you can insist on all the replicas, which obviously makes it much more fragile if something goes down, or you can just say, hey, just one replica is fine, and I will tolerate the, you know, milliseconds of of inconsistency. Then later on in in Cassandra's lifetime, uh, about like four or so years later, I contributed kind of a, a second option based on Paxos that we called lightweight transactions, and so that actually lets you do serializable operations in Cassandra, which you wouldn't be able to do with, with just the, the quorum or 
eventual consistency options. The O'Reilly Software Architecture Conference is coming to Berlin, November 4th through 7th, 2019. I've been going to O'Reilly Software Conferences for the last four years, ever since I started Software Engineering Daily. O'Reilly Conferences are always a great way to learn about new technologies. You get to network with people, you get to eat some food, and there's no better type of conference than a software architecture conference, because it's a great high-level explorational topic, and on November 4th through 7th, the O'Reilly Software Architecture Conference is coming to the city of Berlin, and you can get a 20% discount on your ticket by going to O'ReillySACon.com slash SEDaily and entering discount code SE20. O'Reilly conferences are a great place to learn about microservices, domain-driven design, software frameworks, and management. There are lots of great networking opportunities to get better at your current job or to find a new job altogether. I've met great people at every O'Reilly conference that I've gone to because people who love software go to O'Reilly conferences. You can go to O'ReillySACon.com slash SEDaily to find out more about the Software Architecture Conference. These conferences are very educational, and your company will probably pay for it because you're going to learn about how to improve the architecture of your company. But if they don't want to pay, then you can pay, and you can get 20% off by going to O'ReillySACon.com slash SEDaily and use promo code SE20. That link is also in the show notes for this episode. Thank you to O'Reilly for supporting us since the beginning of Software Engineering Daily with passes to your conferences. Thanks for producing so much great material about software engineering. I particularly enjoyed the episode that I did with Tim O'Reilly a year or two ago. And in that episode, I really got a better understanding of how Tim O'Reilly built his conference business. So you can always check that episode out. Thanks again to O'Reilly. I want to take a moment here to reflect on the fact that you fell into this world of distributed systems theory, and that field is not for everyone. So like I've mentioned a couple times on the podcast, this distributed systems class that I took in my last year of college, I could have failed that class. Like I could have failed that class and then not graduated, and it was the most stressful class I've ever taken. It scared me. Like, frankly, it scared me. It scared me as a computer scientist because I was like, I don't think I can deal with this stuff. It's too complicated. You mentioned vector clocks. That was one of the things that we dealt with. I was like, I mean, you can get grasp them, you know, but like it was just hard. And programming the stuff was super hard. The programming projects were super hard. I mean, I have a lot of respect for people who actually thrust themselves into this industry, like the distributed systems both applied and theoretical. I mean, that class was more emphasis on the theoretical, but then we had to apply them in these projects, and it was just just brutal. And some people, like, actually get a fascination out of this. They actually enjoy it somehow. Did that happen to you in college, or did that happen to you after college when you were working in industry? Yeah, like, I think you hit the nail on the head when you said I kind of fell into it where... I'm going to digress just a little bit and talk about the the virtues of startups, because the thing about a startup is, and well, this was true 
you know, 15 years ago, it's maybe less true now because there's a lot of really, really well-funded startups now. But certainly there's a category of startups where, you know, they've raised a few million dollars and, you know, they, they have a very clear understanding of we need to get to our next milestone of success because the money will run out in 12 months and we need to be able to demonstrate that level of success to raise the next round or to, you know, do whatever makes sense after that. So startups are kind of looking for, in an ideal world, Josh Coates at Mosey would have hired a distributed systems engineer out of Google or you know, out of Amazon and said, okay, I want you to build our storage engine and I'm confident that you can do it because you've done it before. But you know, those engineers would have cost probably three to five times the salary that I was looking for. And so he's like, we're, we're going to take a risk. We're going to hire Jonathan Ellis to do this. And he kind of has no business whatsoever because he's he's never done this before. So we're taking a big risk by doing this. But you know, we're going to roll the dice. And you know, we think he's smart. We think he can figure it out. So startups, to a large degree, I think, are willing to, to make that trade-off if you can you know, make a good case for why you think you can figure out their challenges with them, they're going to be open to letting people try new things that on paper they're not qualified for in a way that larger companies, I think, are more reluctant to do. So that that ended up working out really well for me, and it turned out that I really enjoyed it. I would agree with what you said in the sense that the distributed systems theory is ridiculously difficult. And you know, I, I think of Leslie Lamport's paper called The Part-Time Parliament, where he introduces Paxos. And that, like, that, that paper makes my head spin. That was originally rejected from ACM, I believe. You could be right. I, I'm, not, I'm not sure about that detail. Well, that's, that's the one where he talks about the island, right? Yeah. Like the whole thing is an allegory? Yes. And he's got the... Yes. <laughs> and, but then in, in the... The cheese inspector. Yeah, like... <laughs> 20 years later or something, maybe it was, I think it was, I think part-time parliament was published in the seventies, but then in the nineties, like he got impatient with like all these mere mortals who couldn't understand how brilliant this idea was. And I'm not being sardonic there. Like it really was brilliant. That's right. He wrote another paper called Paxis Made Simple. And he's like, look, I'll, I'll use smaller words this time around. <laughs> and that that's the paper that I recommend if, if you're interested in uh, in Paxos or in distributed systems. It's one of my favorite papers, and it's it's significantly easier to understand. So I, I think of myself not as a, a distributed systems theorist, but as a distributed systems engineer. Like, if you explain something to me, I can go build it. I think, I'm, I think I, that was something I was pretty good at. Yeah. I mean, I did so bad in that class. And well, someday I want to reach out to the professor because he was such a brutal professor, but it really helped. It was, you know, he, he even said in the class, he was like, this class is going to be brutal, but you're going to thank me later on in your career. And it's like, absolutely true. You know, I'm very thankful for the brutality, but I, I digress. Actually, did Cassandra ever move to Raft? Did you guys update to Raft or you stuck with Zookeeper and that's Paxos? It took us long enough to debug Paxos that we didn't want to debug Raft on top of that. Oh, so you didn't you didn't use Zookeeper? No, no, we built our own Paxos implementation. What was the reasoning there? Again, we didn't we didn't want to introduce an extra dependency, and also Zookeeper was very opinionated around you know we're going it it, it does what's called multi Paxos, where it elects a leader, and then that leader is responsible for doing a bunch of 
you know, you know transactions until it dies. But when it dies, then then you have that period of unavailability again. And so Cassandra actually uses a more basic version of Paxos without that leader election so that as long as you have a quorum of replicas available, you'll be able to process your transaction without you know waiting for, for an election. Okay. I don't know if you saw this, but I think Kafka recently like factored out Zookeeper. They, yeah, they published a proposal or, or a statement of direction saying, hey, we're going to do this. So uh, I don't believe there's a proof of concept yet, but they've basically came to the conclusion that you know, Zookeeper doesn't, again, kind of the same place we were at, which is Zookeeper has these opinions about the way consensus should work. And this isn't actually the best fit for what Kafka needs. And so we're going to build something that's a better fit. That sounds like a moon landing level engineering effort. I would say yes, but the thing is that the moon landings of the you know early two thousands in computer science are the routine you know development efforts of twenty nineteen. Unlike I think rocket actual rocket science, I think in computer science we've done a really good job of kind of extending the state of the art and saying, oh, this is actually a well understood space that was really really difficult in two thousand five, and now you know we have a really good understanding of how to solve that problem. And maybe even more important, we have a really good understanding of how to test solutions to that problem and convince ourselves that a new consensus implementation is actually solving the problem that uh, that it purports to solve. And we're confident about that. Is that like a broad trend you're referring to? Or are you referring to like the ability to use Kubernetes? Like we could just use Kubernetes and we, now we have like really good programmable abstractions for doing distributed systems? Yeah, I, th- I think it is a trend across the industry that, you know, these things that required PhD level, you know, research and development efforts for, you know, Amazon in 2007, you know, that's, that's something that you just, you know, import Raft today, or, you know, you spin up Kubernetes instead of building a complex homegrown deployment system. Yeah, or like stringing together some scripts or something. How long did it take for people to start trusting Cassandra to like enough to actually use it as critical infrastructure. When did, when did it become actually like an abstraction that people were demanding? I think Comcast was the first. That was like the first big customer that wanted help, right? This is this is like 2011 ish. So my memory is a little bit fuzzy here. So Cassandra was open sourced in 2008. It was contributed to the Apache Foundation either at the end of that year or the beginning of 2009. I became a committer on that Apache project in like March or so of 2009. And then I started Datastax in May of 2010. And so we were already getting, by the time I started Datastax, we we already had people using Cassandra in production. And this was like Cassandra version 0.5 or 0.6. So it was definitely at the... Very, you know, we're moving very fast and things are changing very quickly. There were, again, a, a lot of them were startups were, were looking at this and saying, if I have to build a data infrastructure layer the old-fashioned way with sharded MySQL, that will break my company because I just don't have you know, the six-person ops teams to keep that running. And so they were willing to you know, take risks on this new technology because the devil they know is just not sustainable for them. 
So I remember Dig was one of the very earliest to use Cassandra in production, if you remember that early social media site. Of course. I don't think I could tell you who was actually the very first, but Dig was okay. one of the first. And there was all, there was a company in Austin called OneSpot that was also very early on. Those are the two names that jump out to me from that time period. That charted my sequel. So people and and if I recall, the difficulty there was that the client had to handle the sharding, right? Like if you want to write your not Ruby on Rails, I guess it would have been uh, what, like basically your Java application, right? Like yeah, it was, the, it was all about the Lamp stack back then, right? Oh, Lamp stack. Okay, so your PHP application would have to know what shard to address to get the right piece of data, right? Exactly. Yeah. So you'd have to build a a custom router service in front of it, perhaps, or or build it into the client. Those are kind of your options. Which is just brutal, and an application developer should not have to deal with that. Right. So that's the problem on the application side. But then on the ops side, like MySQL replication would just fall over. And then it's like, okay, I need a human, oh, right. to, I need a human to intervene and, and clean this up. And in the meantime, you know, I'm down to, if I, if I have just a single master-slave pair, like if I lose the other machine while I'm fixing that replication, then I, I've lost data in production. And that's really scary. Was Oracle solving that problem? Like, could, could you just buy Oracle and like be okay? I never worked at at an Oracle shop at the level uh, needed to say for sure. Certainly, the the price alone was a was a big deterrent if you were looking at at solving it with sharded Oracle. Yeah, it's just interesting that problem didn't get well. I don't know. I guess because it ultimately was like startups, like companies with no money were like the ones who were just like. We need some kind of, or, well, I don't know. We'll have to do a retrospective. Yeah, and this was kind of the golden age of open source too, right? Where MySQL and PostgreSQL had kind of demonstrated that open source infrastructure can actually be just as reliable as paying thousands of dollars for an Oracle license. And so I think by the time that, that Cassandra came along, you know, that ground had been broken and that wasn't, I wouldn't say it was not an obstacle, but it wasn't nearly the obstacle that it would have been 10 years previously. So then when you look at today and you have companies that can actually solve sharded MySQL, like we've had PlanScale on the show a couple times, is Cassandra solving a different problem now? Because like now I feel like the Cassandra ecosystem solves a diff- like maybe a different set of problems. I, I don't want to speak for the entire Cassandra community, but, but at Datastax, I think our emphasis has shifted a little bit to what I would call the the hybrid cloud problem. Uh, and you know, I don't want to do too much of a data stack sales pitch, but uh, this is as some relevant statistics. We have roughly 50% of our customers using Amazon's cloud, 25% using Microsoft's, 12% using Google's, 12% using another cloud, and you know, something like uh, 60 to 75% also running our software on their own infrastructure. And so if you add those numbers up, that's well over 100%. And so <laughs> you know, we're, we're, we're motivated to you know, solve the problem of not just distributed in the, I'm going to partition my data set sense, but the distributed in the, my data lives in different places sense. And uh, that's, I think that's a, a more difficult problem and a more interesting one. Interesting. So just the, the heterogeneity of where your infrastructure is sitting. Mm-hmm. So what have you learned in the years building 
data stacks, and particularly when, when the focus has been on Cassandra, what kinds of like lessons have you learned that have given you a, a core competency to feel like there's like a business opportunity, there's an engineering differentiation opportunity? Like, how are you thinking about the the, the strategic as you as you begin to to change that strategic focus? Like, what's motivating that? I think it's not a a secret in the infrastructure space that the public clouds are, you know, they're friend, but they're also foe. And what I mean by that is, you know, I, I said a couple minutes ago that, you know, 2005, 2008, this was the, the golden age of open source. And I don't think we're in that golden age anymore because when a vendor like Amazon comes in and says, oh, hey, thanks for creating Apache Kafka people at Confluent. That was you know, very public spirited of you. Now I'm going to create Apache. I don't remember what the abbreviation is. Is it MKS, Managed Kafka Service, something like that? And they did the same with uh, Elasticsearch. And there, there was this golden age where companies were saying, hey, we understand there is this very brief window where, where it says, oh, there's this clear model for how to build open source infrastructure and create a business on top of that while also giving away this IP in the, in the open source project. And I don't think we're living in that world anymore. And so you, you, you have Confluent and Elastic and Redis and MongoDB. They've all changed their licenses to, you know, I believe all of the examples I listed would not be technically open source under the definition of that term, even though the, the source is available and it's free to use for people who want to deploy that on their own infrastructure. But the license is set up so that Amazon can't just say, thank you very much for being our R&D department. And now we're going to go sell this and compete with you. Datastax has, has taken a, a slightly different approach, and I think we got started on this a little bit earlier. We started doing this in 2016, where we said, hey, we've, we've had this model where we're going to contribute all of the core database improvements to Apache Cassandra, and then we're going to build our business kind of around that open core. And we've moved towards, hey, we're actually going to keep a lot of those core improvements. We're going to keep those for the Datastax product. And you feel if you wouldn't have made that decision, you would be in a worse position today, business-wise? Yes. Really? And you, you say that despite the... I mean, because it sounds like you have such heterogeneity of customers. I mean, if you, I imagine if you would have just gone... Like, let's say you would have just gone until, like, until today and just kept everything kind of in the open, you know, not keep as much stuff under the hood. What makes you sure that, like, you, you would be in, in a less strategically beneficial position? I think what makes me sure is if you just look at the revenue numbers that, that Amazon Web Service posts, I, it's, it's pretty much that simple because if you're saying we have the, the same product or substantially the same product because we've open sourced it, and on the one hand, Datastax is trying to convince people to pay for Datastax's service, and on the other hand, Amazon is saying, hey, we have all of the advantages in our cloud and we're competing with you directly by offering Cassandra as a service. Like that's that's a, a really tough proposition. So, and that's not a hypothetical situation. We announced a couple months ago 
that we're creating a set of services called DataStacks Constellation. And the first one of those is going to be DataStacks Apache Cassandra as a service. So like, you know, like I said, that's, that's not a hypothetical for us. Now, from a business point of view, I completely get it. Like, so advantageous. What I wonder, and, and this is kind of like the bear case for the decisions that like Mongo and Elastic and so on are making here, is that there might be some downside from the point of view of the open source community. But at the same time, it's like, I mean, how important is that open source community relative to the, the developers that actually work at, you know, at the open core yeah. based company. Do you feel like there's been a trade-off there? Yeah, there's definitely a trade-off. I'm not saying that that this is a one-size-fits-all answer and everything everyone should do what Datastacks does. It is a trade-off. And I think, you know, I, I said that, you know, 10 years ago, there was kind of a sense that we understood how to monetize open source and build that. Now we don't understand that anymore. And Datastacks and Confluent and Elastic, you know, we're all trying to figure out what the new answer looks like. And there isn't a playbook where we're inventing new ones. And so I'm not saying I've got all the answers, but I'm saying, you know, this is, this is the problem we're trying to solve. And here's what, what I think is a, is a reasonable first stab at a solution. But to, to talk about the, the trade-off there around, you know, the open source community, we, we definitely believe in the continued importance of that Apache Cassandra community. And so when I said, you know, we're, we're moving more of our innovations into the, the Datastack server product rather than contributing everything to Apache Cassandra, I definitely don't mean to imply that, you know, we, you know, took our ball and went home and said, good luck, uh, Apache. <laughs> right. So we continue to maintain the half a dozen of the, the most popular drivers for Cassandra we continue to be involved in meetups. We're sponsoring ApacheCon next month. I'll be giving a talk about how you know, Datastax is supporting the Cassandra 4.0 release with testing resources. And I believe I'll, I may have another announcement to, to make. I'll let that be a surprise for, for ApacheCon. Yeah, we're definitely looking to stay involved with Apache Cassandra and continue to, to grow that success story. When I'm building a new product, G2i is the company that I call on to help me find a developer who can build the first version of my product. G2i is a hiring platform run by engineers that matches you with React, React Native, GraphQL, and mobile engineers who you can trust. Whether you are a new company building your first product, like me, or an established company that wants additional engineering help, G2i has the talent that you need to accomplish your goals. Go to softwareengineeringdaily.com slash G2i to learn more about what G2i has to offer. We've also done several shows with the people who run G2i, Gabe Greenberg and the rest of his team. These are engineers who know about the React ecosystem, about the mobile ecosystem, about GraphQL, React Native... They know their stuff, and they run a great organization. In my personal experience, G2i has linked me up with experienced engineers that can fit my budget, and the G2i staff are friendly and easy to work with. They know how product development works. They can help you find the perfect engineer for your stack, and you can go to softwareengineeringdaily.com slash G2i to learn more about G2i. 
Thank you to G2i for being a great supporter of Software Engineering Daily, both as listeners and also as people who have contributed code that have helped me out in my projects. So if you want to get some additional help for your engineering projects, go to softwareengineeringdaily.com slash G2i. So we've been doing a lot of shows on this topic, and I just find it so fascinating because people get emotional about this subject. And a lot of it has to do with what people view as fundamentals, open source fundamentals, like the ideological fundamentals of open source. But you think about it like open source is not even that old. And there was no like 10 commandments of open source, right? Like there was like people bickering the whole time about what open source mean. Yeah. And I think I could probably guess like like you know here's some some personality traits that you find commonly in software engineers that that uh, might play into that. But you know certainly since Richard Stallman started the Free Software Foundation, I think it was in the early '80s. You know, there's definitely been that like oh no, it has to be GPL and it has to enforce yeah. that people contribute back versus you know the Apache philosophy of you know it's it's open for everyone to use and that includes you know, proprietary uses. So yeah, you're right. It's, it's, that's a, a fertile ground for, uh, you know, debate for at least 30 years. Tell me about the economics of a database company. I realize you're the CTO and the organization humbly hired a external CEO, which is a decision I really respect, by the way, knowing when to hire an external CEO, that takes a lot of humility. And so I have a lot of respect for that. But somebody you know, smart enough to have the humility to do that, I imagine has some sense of the economics of the business. So tell me about the economics. Is there anything interesting you've learned about building a database business? Yeah, I think this is probably relevant for, you know, the the audience that, that you have here, which is when I started Datastacks, I kind of had this mental model that, you know, we weren't going to need a sales force. Like we'd have people to answer the phones when somebody called us up and said, hey, I want to buy Cassandra support. But you know, the the idea was you know, the need for the product and the market demand was obvious enough you know, that we wouldn't need a traditional sales force. And so Madfile was, was my uh, co-founder and our first CEO. And so he was the one who he actually put up his hand after about a year and said, I know this is growing bigger than my ability to to direct it and we need to bring in someone with more experience. And that was Billy Bosworth, who became our, our CEO after a year. But you know, when Billy when Billy came in, he's like, you guys need a sales force like you know six months ago. So he started you know fixing that as one of his first priorities. But but he was right. Like we waited too long partly because as a couple you know people with engineering backgrounds, we didn't realize that you know when you go to a, a Cisco systems and you say, hey, you should use our distributed database. Like there's a whole process internally around making that decision and you know getting the CFO to agree to sign the check and so forth. And so one of the things that I, I would say I learned is that there is a lot more value to that you know, sales side of things than I thought at first, given my, my engineering background. Other things about the economics uh, so today, Datastax is uh, about 600 employees, and 
one of the things that I'm proudest of is that we've kept the culture of, you know, you can do your job from anywhere in the world. And that's, you know, obviously there's, there's some limits there around, you know, if you're the sales manager for, you know, the, the Midwest, then you're not going to be able to do that effectively from Singapore. But certainly on the, the engineering side of things, we have people from, actually, it's about 75% in North and South America, about 25% in Europe, and a handful in Asia, primarily because the Asian time zones are more challenging for a US-based company. But yeah, so you, I, I'd gotten used to kind of the, the open source style of building software. And I really liked how the incentives just seem correct for engineering. In other words, you know, if I'm running a team of engineers and they all come into to the office and we have lunch together and so forth, there's a, a very natural tendency to kind of manage by what you see. Like if I see Jonathan coming in and you know, he's always in the office before I am and he leaves after I leave, like I'm going to think like, wow, that Jonathan really works hard. But like the important thing is not in engineering how many hours you're putting in, but whether your work is effective in solving problems. And so when you're when you're remote, it kind of takes that that bias out of the system. And and now I'm managing by like what is Jonathan producing and is he you know doing reviews effectively and and is he you know writing good code rather than you know the, this other half that's that's kind of a distraction. I will say that that there is one additional skill set when you're working in a remote team like like that, which is that you need to be better at handling things asynchronously. So instead of going over to Gary's cube and saying, hey, Gary, I just posted a pull request for this problem. Can you check that out and, and we'll get it committed? You know, Gary might be, you know, in six hours away and, you know, I'll have to wait until the next morning to, to see his comments and I'll, I need to be able to switch to working on something else in the meantime. But I think most engineers are okay with that and I think it's a good trade-off. So if I know the timeline correctly, you started Datastax when you were in Austin, or or was it San Antonio? Yeah, I was in San Antonio, and Matt File was in Austin. The company was incorporated in Austin. Right. Okay. So I guess you don't really have the Mopac traffic problem, and you're you, you just work out of your home, or do you do you uh, commute to an office? Yeah, I I commuted from San Antonio up to Austin for about a year, a couple times a week, just because our first engineering hires were in Austin. Can't do that today. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, actually, like we got office space in this very, I guess you could politely call it up and coming part of town on the, the east side of 35. And oh, yeah. like, it was very cheap. And, you know, that was good for us at the time. Like today, that same spot is there's, there's like three new, you know, High rise, <laughs> right? Right, exactly. My mom was a real estate agent in '08 in Austin around that time, and so like I, I would drove around with her sometimes, and um, mm-hmm. yeah, that was an interesting, interesting time in the development of Austin. What a fast growing city! But your headquarters are in Santa Clara. Yes. Why is it that all the database companies in the Bay Area are in like Santa Clara or around that area? Like all the Hadoop companies are like are in that area. 
like yeah. rock set i've interviewed them recently they're kind of in that area is that, is that like the best place to hire data people for some or data, data people like just really like the microclimates in santa clara what's going on there i think it's kind of uh you probably know this better than i do since you live out there but there's kind of the old rule of thumb is that you know san francisco that's more consumer focused and then Silicon Valley's, that's going to be more like enterprise focused and more, also more hardware focused, but that's less relevant for, for the database companies. Interesting. So you mentioned this like kind of competitive dynamic with the cloud providers. Mm-hmm. Can you tell me a little bit more about how that plays out in like deals or, or like how it plays out in terms of like tactics today? What do you feel is your relation to cloud providers? Like, is it a frenemy relationship? And like, you know, how's the diplomacy look and so on? The relationship with cloud providers is it's mixed. It's it's different depending on the, the cloud provider. For instance, Google announced a partnership with Datastax and a half a dozen other open source infrastructure companies at their, their conference in April. And, you know, I think... They're looking to be more proactive in kind of addressing that tension and saying, hey, you know, we want to work with you guys and you know, create an opportunity for both of us to succeed. And, and they're looking at some creative ways to do that. So I hope that that's the, the wave of the future because I, I really, I, you know, we've got a great partnership with Google at this point and, and really happy with the direction that's going. So... I've had some conversations with people about building these open source companies. And one one point I've heard raised is that it, it seems to be important to be the moral authority of a project. So like, if you are building an open source company, it's kind of hard to do it if you are not the controller of the repository. Do you think that's that's strategically true, or do you think that it's, it's possible for multiple companies to be built around a single open source project? You know, I'm not sure because I can't think of an example of, well, actually, yeah. I mean, the biggest example is, is Linux, right? And so you've got Red Hat, you've got Canonical. So yeah, I think that's definitely an example of multiple customer or or multiple companies collaborating there. And I think that, you know, people would have different opinions on whether, you know, each of these companies is is pulling their weight, so to speak, in the project. But that's the best example I can think of. It definitely seems to be uncommon, though. How have you balanced engineering between the open source projects and kind of the internal sauce? So for the first six years or so, it was really easy where, you know, everything just goes to Apache. And so, but the more interesting balance, I think, you know, is more recently, like what, what does that look like now? And it's kind of our VP of product up until recently, he moved into product marketing. His name's Robin Schumacher. You know, his, his rule of thumb was if you're, if you're building something that's a usual and customary feature of the product, like if you're building a database and you know, you're looking at something like indexes, that's something that people expect to be in a database. Like that should be part of the, the open source you know, project that you're giving away. But if you're looking at something like you know, full disk encryption, that's maybe not as much of a usual and customary thing. And that would be a good candidate for 
DataStax Enterprise. All right, last question. What's the biggest engineering problem you're working on today at, at DataStax? That's definitely the, the launch of Constellation. And so we, we've been building this you know, self-managed software for nine years now. And you know, that, of course, that includes Apache Cassandra as well as DataStax Enterprise. And now we're saying, oh, we're also going to build and run a cloud service that you know, exposes this to hundreds and thousands of users uh, concurrently. That's a very different skill set, and it's a very different muscle to grow internally. So it's both an engineering challenge in terms of you need to you know, build the Kubernetes operator and you need to build the Envoy proxies and so forth, but it's also an organizational challenge. So that's, I would say that makes, the, makes it more interesting when you have that combination. Jonathan, thank you for coming on the show. It's been a real pleasure talking to you. Thanks so much, Jeff. When I was in college, I was always looking for people to start side projects with. I couldn't find anybody, so I ended up working on projects by myself. And then when I started working in the software industry, I started to look for people who I could start a business with. And once again, I couldn't find anyone, so I started a business myself. And that's the podcast you're listening to. But since then, I've found people to work with on my hobbies and in my businesses. And working with other people is much more rewarding than working alone. That's why I started Find Collabs. Find Collabs is a place to find collaborators and build projects. On findcollabs.com, you can create new projects or join projects that are already going. There are topic chat rooms where you can find people who are working in areas that you're curious about, like cryptocurrencies or React or Kubernetes or Vue.js or whatever software topic you're curious about. And we now have GitHub integration, so it's easier than before to create a Find Collabs project for your existing GitHub projects. If you've always wanted to work on side projects or you want to find collaborators for your side projects, check out Find Collabs. I'm on there every day, and I'd love to see what you're building. I'd also love if you'd check out what I'm building. Maybe you'd be interested in working on it with me. Thanks for listening, and I hope you check out Find Collabs. Find Collabs.